For those of you who are experienced Christians, in other words, you've been around for 30 or more years uh, following Jesus Christ, I'm going to go through a series of seminars that I have attended over the years. And if these ring a bell to you, raise your hand. Um, basic youth conflicts goes way back. Okay, a few of you, all right. Uh, <clears throat> uh, a discipling ministry seminar, just a handful of us. That, never, that one didn't take off, though discipling has, okay. Evangelism explosion, three, four days, okay. Uh, church growth in America. That was me because, you know, they said that, you know, Jim, pastors go to that, so I went. Promise keepers, men. Women, keep your hands down, please, unless you snuck in. Ten keys to church health. That was me, too, okay. Uh, <clears throat> church planting boot camp. Me, too, okay. The missional church. Me, too, okay. Um, Developing small groups. Terry, raise your hand. There you go. She's our developer there. House churches. Spiritual mentoring. Few of us have done that. Okay. Global Leadership Summit. That's this week at Ascent Church. It is a, a um, what do you call it, online video, and there's all these host churches that do it. And I've been to a couple of those, and that really is one on uh, church leadership and leadership in general. Boy, that's a lot. If you count these, I had 12. I've been in ministry since 1970. That's 45 years. That means I go to a new one about every four years. And all of these would be the, it's the wave that is coming into the church. And it just, it sweeps in. And then you know what happens next? It sweeps out. And within four years, there's another new one. And I want you to know I have, been, I have benefited greatly by attending all of these seminars. And uh, the, uh, the knowledge base and the understanding base, especially of the church in America, I have grown in. However, to say that they have greatly changed my life, I'm not sure. Because they sweep in and they sweep out. Now, here's some seminars you may have attended. Some of you uh, high schoolers have been to Palms, okay? You go for a whole week or more. Soccer camps. How about this one for you adults? Flipping houses for profit. <laughs> for those of you who are older, it's still not too late. Maximize your Social Security benefits. Tony Robbins. Oh, come on. Some of you did that. You know it, okay? Or even a few of you, don't raise your hand on this one, Scientology spoon bending. <laughs> I want you to know if there was a subject to be taught, there's always a three-day seminar to bring you in and teach you. And usually they're very good, but because our, our whole time framework has changed, now they offer us a free chicken dinner to get us to sign up for a three-day seminar coming soon. They've had to find different ways to advertise. Did you ever hear of this one? And if it was offered, would you attend? Three days with Jesus. A three day with Jesus seminar, meaning Jesus is there. I would have loved to have signed up if it was available in my lifetime. But I want you to know there was one 
and many did go, and they never got the invitation in the mail. We are in that position in the Gospel of Mark where we are halfway through. But all the way through the entire Gospel, Mark comes through with this strong conviction. This Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. In 16 chapters, he does everything he can to share his conviction to convince those of the next generation in Rome who have never attended a three-day seminar, who have never met Jesus, who only know him through the apostles. And he wants them to know that this Jesus was, when he was on earth, the Son of God. He is now, as he is in heaven, and he always will be God's only Son. He also works not on just the identity of Jesus, but what that's supposed to mean to our inner beings. Inside of our souls, what does it mean that Jesus is God's son? And he has a very simple strategy. You see, uh, we're about to enter that point where there is a three-day seminar. Uh, Three days with Jesus seminar. It wasn't planned. It just seemed to happen. But Mark is continually wanting us to know his simple strategy. What did Jesus say? Take it. Read it, study it, memorize it, make it a part of your life. What did Jesus do? Secondly, that's what the gospel is all about. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? Therefore, who is Jesus? Who Jesus is, is the Son of God. Now, he comes as the exact representation of his Father, but he's limited by appearing in human flesh, but human flesh can't be in two places at one time. Moms, I know you think you can do it, but you can't. So Mark 8, we come to a a section which you say, haven't we, isn't this similar to Mark 4 or Mark 6? What is it about Mark 8 that makes it worth our reading? You might say, I'm reading Mark chapter 8 and it's same old, same old. I've been here many times before, but he's trying to attack one more time as we get to the middle and some say the climax of this gospel. Who is this man? We want to answer that question. Who is this man? So we start with Mark chapter eight and it's simply another mob, but another meal. Jesus has traveled to the non-Jewish side of Galilee, the uh, east side. And he is teaching Gentiles, or mainly Gentiles this time, as he has taught the Jews. Now, we have some of his teachings put together called the Sermon on the Mount, which we believe was taught continually uh, to Jews. But here he tells many of the stories and parables so that people walk away not just remembering the content, but how Jesus put it. And they tell a story. Now, if you're like me, I know some wonderful stories. I just forget the point behind them. You're not like that, are you? Okay. I've heard someone say, my pastor told the funniest joke last Sunday. And they tell me the joke. And I will say, and the point was? Uh, The point was it was funny. He's telling this so people will remember. He's telling these so they'll have a a human latch to hold on to. So let me start. And if you have your Bibles, uh, we're not going to see so much what he says, 
but how long he said it. I'm in Acts, chapter, uh, Acts, Mark, chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come from a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Ah, Jesus had done this in Mark chapter 6, so he says, how many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. Hey, that's two more than last time. So there's hope, right? No, there's not hope. That's not, not nearly enough. So they have been listening to Jesus teach three days, and they are hungry for more. But more than a spiritual hunger, there is developing after three days, for me, after four hours, there is developing a, a, a physical hunger. And Jesus has been satisfying their, um, their, their spiritual appetite, but he wants to do more. So in his teaching this mob, they learn more about God in those three days than they had up to that point in their entire lives. And now they're going to watch not just what Jesus says, but what he does. They're going to watch his power. So he, he makes this great statement. Verse 2, I have compassion for these people. Now, a lot of them were not the Jewish people to whom he was called. They were the non-Jews. Uh, we saw just a couple weeks ago, they were called the, the little puppies under the table who get the crumbs when the children have eaten. They were the non-Jews, the Gentiles, as the entire rest of the world was called. But as he looks at them and he says, I have compassion for them. I have been feeding them spiritually like they've never been fed before. And now I need to, to meet their physical needs. If you do not know this about Jesus, you have a bad view of him. I don't know where you got it. I hope it wasn't this church. If you do not know that Jesus is filled with compassion, you need to study the Gospels. You need to read about him. Because we often emphasize his power or his kingship or his lordship or things like that. But he is filled with compassion as he looks at his creation. The son of God cares. When you think Jesus, do you think he loves me? If you do not think that, you do not yet know Jesus as he wants to be known. Well, we go on and we read that he actually feeds them with just a, 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 you know, a, a few loaves and a few other fish. So you look at the comparison. Uh, in chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 with five buns and two little smoked fishies. And this feeding is not larger but smaller. Now, it's supposed to get bigger. We're in America, right? You don't feed the 5,000 first and then the 4,000. That says you need to rebrand. Instead, you feed the 4,000, and the next time it comes out, it's 5,000, but you say it's got to be at least 12,000. That's branding. That is a movement that's going. But the idea was Jesus is not trying to say, now I can feed more. 
So we're focusing on what you might call a lesser miracle after a greater one. But here is what is important. Jesus loves those who are not Jews. That's people like me. And he loves them as much as he loves the Jews. Because, not because they're Gentiles, but because they're human beings like you and I. And they are created in the image of God. And they have been drawn to Jesus to the point that they lay aside their physical needs just for the privilege to be with them. So I read in verse 6 what happens next. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he has taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. And they had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. Same as the feeding of the 5,000. The people ate and were satisfied. 4,000, 5,000 makes no difference. There's enough for them. God provides. And afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left uh, over. And about 4,000 of them, I'm sorry, about 4,000 men were present that day. And having sent them away, Jesus gets in a boat, same as last time. And last time he puts the disciples in the boat and he stays behind to pray. But the, it's, it's, like, it's like an MO. We've seen this before. And yet, as he does this, and the mass eats and is satisfied, and there are seven large baskets left, of leftovers, uh, and they get into the fishing boat, what is it that we see again? Jesus' power, Jesus' ability, no matter what, you know, what confronts him, but also his compassion and the fact that afterwards he needs to get away. So he does get away. And this time he goes from the certain, probably the northeast side where the Gentiles were living in large numbers to the southwest side of Lake Galilee. And as he gets off, the Pharisees are waiting for them. And it says on this other side, when he gets off, he meets, he's met again by the Pharisees, and the Pharisees come not to be fed, but they have a game that's used in, in Washington, D.C. all the time. The game is called gotcha. And uh, what they are looking for is they want to catch Jesus in some error. It's another dispute. Every time he meets with them, it seems to be a dispute. And they have come as the experts. They have their masters of divinity. They have their doctors of ministry. They have the, uh, the professors that they have, uh, renowned professors that they have studied under. They have all the memorization work and all the language prep that they could have. And Jesus, uneducated, unsophisticated, inexperienced, country bumpkin, but he threatens their status and authority. So here is what happens. To test him, it says in verse 11, they ask him for a sign from heaven. What was the feeding of the 5,000? Oh, that can't be a sign. What was the feeding of the 4,000? That can't be a sign. What was walking on water? That can't be a sign. What was, you know, healing the blind man, making the lame walk? What was the leprosy? Oh, and, and, and expelling all the demons. Well, yeah, but we need another one. And if they had another one, that still wouldn't be enough. Just want you to know. But here is the word. Ask him for a sign from heaven. 
But the word in there is they wanted to test him. Their motivation is testing. And in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is uh, being tempted by the devil, it is the same word. He is testing Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, there's an equation here that Pharisees equal the devil. But I'm saying it is the same um, tactic, the same strategy. They're testing so that somehow, somewhere, they can find a weak spot in Jesus' character. Uh, In fact, that's what Satan does. He tests Jesus in three simple ways, and going after his character, his inner motivations. As the Pharisees are looking for a weak spot, they don't care if it's it's his character. They're just looking for a weak spot anywhere. And they still cannot find one, and you never will. So they make one up if they can't find one. Friends, I want you to know the religious establishment is a lot like the political establishment. And when I say that, understand, I guess you'd call me in the religious establishment. They are both made up of people. And like all people, they find security in finding faults in others. So Jesus has already shown so many signs. And yet there's another one that, you know, that it would be just like the devil quoting these words. This is what the devil said. If you are really the son of God, command the stone to turn to bread. That was what he did. He said, give me a sign. Show me. And the Pharisees say, give us a sign from heaven to prove it. And Jesus answers after sighing in verse 12, why does this generation, it's the generation he lived in, but it would be every generation, ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given it. Knowing the motive of the religious leaders and their resistance to believe no matter what Jesus might do, he tells them no sign will be given. He means the type of sign that they are looking for, he is not about to give. But friends, I want you to know there will be a sign. It is not the sign that they expected. It's a sign that even his disciples would miss. It is a sign that the experts of the Old Testament, if they really knew their stuff, would say, this is what we should be expecting. This is the sign that we will look for in terms of the Messiah. If the disciples were looking for this sign, they would marvel when it happened instead of mourning. And Isaiah gives what this sign is because he describes the Messiah in most ways that the the Jews do not expect and they will not accept. The sign of God's Messiah will not be a holy army defeating Rome and setting up a new kingdom and a new court system. The sign of God's Messiah will be a massive defeat, at least as it appears on earth. But it'll be declared an eternal victory in heaven, and that's the kingdom that counts. Isaiah describes God's Messiah this way. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all are like sheep who have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. There is something in our souls like in the Pharisees that resists this Jesus being the Son of God. There is something that we all are carrying around inside of us that resists Jesus. I did it till I gave in. Some of you gave in real early and you were super motivated. But friends, even now, let me just be honest. There are moments when I know exactly what God wants me to do, what it means to be following Jesus, and I say, anything but that. I resist him. There are people that, whose whole soul structure is looking for some other way than finding forgiveness through Jesus Christ. They find some way in which, like the Pharisees, they can be good enough without seeking forgiveness. We will keep a code and we say, look how good we are. Or we will make favorable comparisons of ourselves as compared to others. And we're better than them. Or we will trust in human philosophies tied to the natural world, but not the supernatural world. The Pharisees can be described in one simple word, resistant. That is their heart condition. The Gentile crowd can be summarized in one simple word, hungry. They are resistant. And they are no different than humanity as we know our human beings today. If you are still among those who resist the divinity of Jesus and the fact that he is the Savior who forgives you of your sins, then understand you will be asking also, the cross is not enough. I need a sign. Are you still looking for a sign? Are you still saying, overwhelm me, bowl me over with something? That is our sign. And we just celebrated that together. So we have the Gentiles, we have the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And there's another group that's been around through this whole thing. You see, they get in the boat. And I, and I love this, 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 this little insight, this little maybe 10-minute incident. They get in the boat, and they're sailing to the other side. And, I, you know, when I'm sailing, uh, I, I'm always a little nervous because something always bad happens when I sail. Ask Barb. I've never been sailing when it goes well. So when I'm sailing, I'm a little nervous. But experienced sailors say, okay, we can take a break. Let's relax. And so my guess is they got in the boat, they were sailing, or maybe some were rowing if there was no wind, but they were making progress. And, and so when you can relax a little bit, you're, you're well onto your, into where you expect your destination to be, you look at one another and, we, and you ask this very, I think, important question. Who brought the snacks? 
it's time to eat. We've got this downtime. And they only brought one loaf of bread. They just fed 4,000 with seven loaves, but one loaf will not be enough for 13. I get it. I get it. I get it because I'm a lot like that. Barb and I have a game we play. it, it, it became very famous, our game, uh, early in our marriage. It's known as the BS game. Now, BC stands for be, before Christ. BS, no, no, it's not what you think. BS is before smartphones. <laughs> and that, by the way, will be an era that we remember, okay? Before smartphones, Barb and I would be on a, you know, be somewhere, we'd see a beautiful scene. It would be, just be gorgeous. And one of us would look at the other and would say, did you bring the camera? And the other one would look at the other and say, I thought you were bringing the camera. And then we'd go through this series of excuses. I, 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 didn't, I wasn't thinking of the camera. What are you doing? Well, that is called the BS game. And now they're playing it here. I guess you could call it the BB game. Who brought the bread? And since they have some downtime, probably one of them said, well, that was your job. It's not my job, I'm rowing. Well, then it must have been your job. I wasn't bringing the bread, I'm the one to make sure that we're headed to the right direction. I've got the till, and so it could go on and on and on. And so in this great teachable moment, and I want you to know, when you are finding yourself in conflict, the living Christ has a teachable moment for you. And so Jesus gives a reminder to them, and it's a reminder that exposes them in terms of the shallowness of their faith. Who brought the bread? Doesn't matter. Here's what Jesus wants them to know. He says, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. Beware of the yeast or leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Now, a little yeast, as you know, those of you who bake, I'm not one of those, but a little yeast, you just throw it into a lump of dough, and as you knead it, it penetrates everything so the entire loaf rises. Now, if you want bread that's risen, that's a good thing, but if you want pita bread, it's a bad thing. So Herod's yeast, as he's talking, Herod's yeast, in other words, what ruins Herod, his is thirst for power. And the yeast of the Pharisees, what corrupts them is their desire to please God through their actions, through their good deeds, through keeping the rules that are listed there. In other words, a little bit of this in them affects all of the Pharisees. A little bit of this in Herod affects the whole government. And friends, just as uh, the power of any government cannot solve all human problems, keeping the rules, whether the Bible or your home or any other religion, can never result in pleasing God. And if you trust in them, I've made up this word, it's a good one. If you trust in them, you're yeasted. You're leavened, you're corrupted, 
So he's saying, beware of the corruption of both. To which they answered, I thought you were bringing the bread. Um, he gives a reminder through what has just happened with him, the feeding of the 5,000 and the use of bread. He's telling him, beware of the corruption. And here is the response the disciples give. I'm hungry. Remember the movie Up? Squirrel! Okay, it's something like that. My mind's on something else. It's, it's drifted somewhere. So let's do a summary here. If the mob of the Gentiles are hungry to hear Jesus and the Pharisees are resistant to Jesus with no proof able to change their minds, what describes this band of disciples? Do you have a word of what it means to leave everything to follow Jesus and yet as you follow him, you're consistently confronted with, you're not ready for this yet. The word that consistently came to my mind this week and it kept popping up is that it is embarrassing to admit this, but, but it is dull. They are dull. Now Jesus says, do you not yet still understand? In other words, do you not yet get it? You've seen me now for this period of time. You've been with me in every one of these incidences just about, and you still do not get it. Uh, the great W.C. Fields, not familiar with a lot of you, I'm sure. He had a rot uh, movies in the 30s and 40s. He had a big rotund body and a bulbous nose. And he had famous one-liners that made the whole audience laugh in his film, in his films. So he once had this young, uh, this one line, talking to a mother about her young son. Madam, that boy is sharp as a bowling ball. And so are most disciples. And so am I. So let's look at the reminder. When I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets did you pick up? 12. Good. Why did they know 12? Because each of them had one. Now, that basket is a little basket, like a Merce, okay? The guys carry, okay? You don't carry Merces, do you? Okay. Um, and then he goes on to in verse 20. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets did you pick up? Seven. And those were baskets, okay? Huge baskets. They all remember because they were the basket fillers. And when Jesus now feeds 4,000 and they pick up that point, pick up that many baskets, there is a point to be made here. When he says, beware of the Herodians or Herod and of the Pharisees. Friends, government will fail you. It is not perfect. Rule keeping will not earn your favor with God. Now, I don't say go out and break the rules so you can get it, but it's not enough. And Jesus is saying to them, as I provided all the needs of the 5,000 and the 4,000, I am the one you are looking for. But he looks at them and says, do you still not understand? And the answer is no, we don't understand because we're dull. Now, as one 
slow learner now speaking to a high achieving, quick study, increasingly product productive audience as you are. If you brought tomatoes this morning, hold them for just a little bit longer. Spiritual dullness is a human condition. We all carry it within our hearts. But I have hope because of the Holy Spirit indwelling each who has turned to Christ and by the fact that we have this ability to grow, whether it's through a three-day seminar or whatever, we have this ability to grow because we are made in God's image and we can move from the dull to this perceptive and we can say we do understand and we have a great, a great example here. In, in, uh, in that boat asking for bread were at least two disciples and they were both fishermen. One was named Peter, at that time Simon, another named John. And, and these guys... Uh, uh, they are the ones that hide from Jesus when he is being crucified. Perhaps John taking care of, of Jesus' mother there at the cross, but not standing forward as, as a disciple. And, and so as, the, um, as these three groups, the, the hungry Gentiles and the resistant religious leaders, and, the, and, and, and you look at the spiritually dull disciples, I, I got to ask you, do any of these re resonate with you and your current relationship with, with Jesus? Uh, the chances are that you've had seasons where you experience each of them. I have a PhD in dullness. I don't have a certificate for it, but I have proof. I am educated out of my nostrils with three-day seminars, but I still exhibit daily a lack of understanding. It is my anthropology that tells me following Jesus means failing him in some ways, but I have hope. And it's found in Peter and John. In Acts chapter 4, you see these same two men who were asking, where's the bread? Who had no spiritual understanding. They now come to a point where they have healed a man of his, uh, of, of his lameness. They've made him stand. And then, in addition to that, the crowd that is all around saying, how could this happen? They begin to speak boldly about Jesus as, as they have not really spoken very often before. And as they speak, it, the, the whole crowd there around the, around the temple gets so upset, so agitated that the two have to be arrested and put in jail. And the next day, they, they appear before these same religious leaders, maybe some of them the same ones that had asked Jesus for a sign. And as they stand before these people, they're asked the question, by what authority or in whose name did you do this miracle? We know that it happened, by, but how do you do that? Now, in many of these situations, you would find, such as Peter, cowling under their authority, afraid for his very life. But now, some months after the resurrection and the filling of the Holy Spirit, they appear before this body. And instead of cowering, they speak boldly because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And their words are not deeply theological, but they are experiential and filled with the very understanding they did not have just months earlier. Let me read Acts chapter 4. 
then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ now of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, and salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Well, that demands a, a response, and here's what, they, here's what it says. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. These men had been with Jesus. Now, got to take you back. Uh, chapter 3, when he chooses the 12, he chooses them to train them and to be with him. So we just have a period of three years, and apparently it worked. It wasn't the fact that they got a religious education. It wasn't the fact uh, that they had got a degree in theology. What it was is they had been with him, and it was experiential. And we have seen God work this way. Friends, when God works, that is the best thing that you can say. When you sense God is at work in your life, you got to share it. These men had been with Jesus. That's what the world wants to hear. Let's pray. Father, those three groups, hungry, resistant, dull. The hope for each of us is we move from the dull to the bold that through the knowledge and experience we have in following Jesus, we do begin to understand. And when we understand who he is, we can speak courageously. Before courage, Father, help us understand. And thanks for the promise and the reality of your Holy Spirit in us. God's people said, amen. Let's stand up.